I will do my best this morning not to once again torture you with coughing the entire time. I, uh, I'm working on that, but it's still lingering, so I will, uh, I will do my best to hold that back and maybe not cough directly to the microphone so that you get the privilege of hearing that on the, uh, on the podcast. It's a blessing, nonetheless, in all human frailty and weakness and dustness, as we'll look at dustiness, as we'll look at this morning, that God is still glorified through our coming together and that we are still edified as we spend time together as his people in all weakness and humility. Uh, This past week, I was talking with someone involved in Christian education, the Christian, the education of young people, of teenagers. And uh, throughout the course of that conversation, he made a very interesting comment. He said, if I can get my students to understand two things, I'll be doing well. And these were the two things that he identified. First, who is God? And second, who is man? If I can get my, my students to understand these two things, then, then there has been great success. And I would, I would very much agree with that sentiment. So much of our wrong thinking and wrongdoing, both on a personal level, as we think about our own individual lives and we think about our, our families and uh, those we love, but also on, on a universal level as we think about humanity in general uh, as a collective bunch and culture, which is an expression various expressions of human corporateness, of humans coming together. In all of this, whether it's individual or corporate, we see that so much of our wrong thinking and doing derives from misunderstanding at these two points. Who is man and who is God? Well, over the last couple of months, we've seen over and over again that these two questions take us back to the opening chapters of Genesis. And so no matter where you're at in the Bible, no matter what question you're asking about who is God or who is man and all the the sub-questions that fall underneath that, we are ultimately going to be going back to these opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And we saw this at the very beginning with the first verse, the first sermon in this series was entitled, Starting with God. And the reason for that is because when you open up the Bible and you read those first words, it says, in the beginning, God. He's the actor at the beginning of the narrative of Genesis. He, he's the, the mover. He's the one who is acting and doing there. And then we get his action. In the beginning, God created. And so we see As we come to the Bible, as we come to this first book, that it starts where it ought to start. It starts with God. And as we started there and went through up to the early part of chapter 2 so far, we've seen a number of things about God. I just want to give you a few here that we've seen, but et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've seen many things about this great God, but we've seen that he is eternal. He's creative. He's wise. He's orderly. He's powerful. He's holy, he's good, he's personal, and on and on and on. These are just some of the very specific things as we've gone through just the first chapter of Genesis and just 
barely moved into the second chapter, these are some of the things that we have seen about this God. So already we've got an avalanche of an answer to the question, who is God? And then we realize, as we come to the question of who is man, we realize that all throughout the first chapter of Genesis, we're building up to answering this question. So the mere placement of the creation of human beings at the culmination or the apex as the pinnacle of the, of the story of creation that we get in, <coughs> in chapter one tells us uh, uh, something about man. And then when we get to verse 26, we're told that human beings are made in God's image. And we talked about how we resemble God. We represent him. We relate to him and one another. We reproduce and we rely. So we've already begun to build up an understanding of who man is. And today we move into a narrative that gives us <coughs> even more detail about humanity. So please turn with me to Genesis 2. This is where we're going to be this morning. Genesis 2, verses 4 to 7. <coughs> even more detail here about these creatures called humans. The title for the sermon this morning is The Origin of Man. We've got a lot here in chapter two, and uh, when I started out this week, I, I was thinking I would take on a little bit more than these first set of verses, but it proved not to be really possible. I guess it's possible, but it proved not to be fitting or ideal. So we're just going to look at the origin of man, and particularly here, I don't mean man in his, in, as human, I mean man as in Adam, man himself, the male as we are told in the opening chapter, that God made man, male and female, he made them in his image. Well, in chapter two, we get an understanding of how God did that, of man's creation and woman's creation there. But here, we've got the origin of man, or Adam. Before Good Friday and Easter, we finished the creation week. So we looked at those six days of creation in chapter one, and then that was followed by the seventh day of Rest And that led us right into, quite nicely, led us right into <coughs> a consideration of Christ's finished work on the cross on Good Friday. And then the, the new creation that we experience, this eternal rest that we experience through Christ's resurrection as we looked at last Sunday. Six days of work followed by the seventh day of rest. And now as we pick up with chapter 2 verse 4, Moses gives us an expanded discussion of human origins. So in the history of biblical scholarship, one of the things that uh, has been put forward is that, look, we have these two creation accounts. And, and so some scholars have come along and said that we just have a hodgepodge here throughout the ancient world of a, a sort of ongoing collection of disparate little bits that have been smashed together. And so what we have in the first chapter is one creation account, and then later on a different source gives us a, a different creation account. But I think what we, what we have here instead of that is Moses for, is, is giving us a bit of an expansion. You could call it an excursus. He's giving us an expansion on what he has told us already about the creation of human beings in chapter 1. So chapter one, he goes through all of creation. He gets to man, the culmination of all of it. And then in chapter two, he wants to unpack how that went down on day six. So he kind of takes a magnifying glass on day six and shows us what went on there regarding the creation of human 
beings. So with those things being said, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. (coughs) And we will read, as I said, Genesis 2, verses 4 to 7. This is God's holy word. Verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. (coughs) And the man became a living creature. Go ahead and be seated. Let's pray this morning, ask for God's help. Help uh, us to understand his word. Help us to control our minds. I mean, how often the devil works to distract us, especially in moments like this. I mean, you know in your private time with the Lord, as you're there reading your Bible, maybe in the morning, and you're thinking about God, you're reading about God, and all of a sudden it's as though every possible thought just comes zipping into your mind. Every thought about uh, your family or your worries or what happened yesterday or what's going to happen tomorrow, how the day's going to unfold. It's all of you just get bombarded with these distractions, and I think the devil's really good at that. Moments when we have God's word in front of us, we have a tendency there more than any other, which I think is a demonstration of how Satan is real and how he works. He distracts us away from God's word. He doesn't want it to settle in our hearts. Jesus tells us that in the parable of the sower, that it goes out, the word goes out, and Satan is working to uproot it to snatch it. So let's pray that God will protect our minds because ultimately we need his help. We can't do it. And we're going to ask he'll protect our minds so that we can focus on what he has for us here, what food he has for us here from his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us this time. We take it for granted, Lord, but it's a blessing to come and sing praises to you and to pray to you as our God and to declare that You are our maker and our redeemer, our sustainer. Father, that there is none besides you, that we are not our own gods, that other gods are no gods at all, but that you alone reign supreme as the king. Father, help us to worship you as the king this morning and to be grateful for this opportunity. And thank you for your word, which we get to spend some time this morning looking into. Thank you for these songs we've been able to sing, and thank you for the prayers that we hear and pray to you, and thank you for the affirmation of faith that we will collectively say, and and thank you for the Lord's Supper that we will celebrate soon. Father, we are overwhelmed by your goodness. You tell us in creation of how good you are, how much you care for human beings. We have been reminded of that this morning as uh, as we woke up, as we've made our way here without accident and as we've come into this building and as we sit here with friends and neighbors and as we're able to worship you. God, help us to be grateful. And more than all of that, help us to be grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom you sent to die for sinners and whom you raised on the third day. 
and have seated him at your right hand. Help us look to Christ this morning. Help us find in him rest for our souls. In light of Easter, help every day be Easter to us as we meditate on the resurrection of Christ. Thank you for this time, Father. We pray that you would use it in our hearts, that none of us would escape from your watching eye and your penetrating work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are four things in this text that I want to draw your attention to this morning. Uh, There's uh, much that could be said here, and and in fact, I'll, I'll reiterate, especially on point number two, that... Uh, the Bible has many difficult parts. And I was talking with someone this week about the Bible and saying you know, that the Bible is clear, but there are many passages that require lots of work and, and that are difficult to unpack and understand. And, and one of the joys of going through sequentially verse by verse is that you, you, you have to deal with each of those verses, each of those difficult passages. And so, But what we're going to do this morning is just look at these four Things which I think tie together verses 4 to 7. So here they are. The historical account, the preparatory circumstances, the lowly material, and the special creation. I think those are the four things that we really need to hone in on this morning as we look at the origin of man. So let's look first at the historical account. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. One of the things that is very important when studying any piece of literature is to determine its structure. Whatever it is that you're going to look at, a written source, you want to understand how it is laid out, how the various bits fit together into a whole. Now, some things are, are less structured. Some things you, you come across and it's just so clear and you're able to understand how it all fits together. And then some things it's not. There's little bits of information just sort of seems that they're, they're floating all over the place. You pull them together. But nonetheless, we should always be looking for that skeletal structure. And here we are introduced to one of the primary structural elements of the book of Genesis. And it's these words, these are the generations of. Those words, these are the generations of, form a skeletal structure for the entire book of Genesis. I did not mention this when we started as kind of introductory because you kind of mention it as you come to it. And here we come to the first occurrence of it and we see it appearing all throughout the rest of the book. These are called Toledoth. Statements, And the reason they're called that is because generations, the word for that in Hebrew, is toledoth. And so they're called the, the toledoth statements. And what they do in each case, every time you see these words, these are the generations of, they introduce a new section or what could be called a family history. A new little mini history that unfolds. And oftentimes there are genealogies involved there. So it gives you an individual or it gives you an item. And then it goes to unpack that item or tell how things transpired after that individual. Or in this case, the creation as a whole. So what I want to do this morning is I want to kind of show you how this appears throughout the book of Genesis. So I hope you have your Bible open before you. If you don't, go ahead and open it to Genesis 2. 
And what I want to do is walk through some of these with you. If you have a phone or something, you're looking at it there, you should be able to find these pretty quickly. But I want to show you what I mean by this so that you can understand it. So chapter 5, verse 1. I'll go through them pretty quickly. But I just want you to see who's involved and how it unfolds. So chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Then chapter 6, verse 9. Chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Then chapter 10, verse 1. So it just goes through the book of Genesis. Chapter 10, verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Sham, Ham, and Japheth. And then eleven ten, Chapter 11, verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. And then chapter 11, verse 27. Chapter 11, verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah is Abraham's father. And then chapter 25, verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. That's chapter 25, verse 12. And then verse, chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. In chapter 36, verse 1. You can kind of see the structure, the major characters throughout the book of Genesis. In fact, one way to do a series through Genesis, this is not what we're doing, is to you could go through each of you could go to each of these spots and kind of dock them. Some of you are are wishing that that's what we were doing. You could go to these spots and you could dock there and just kind of unfold that little bit and then move on to the next and not have to go through it so, so slowly. We're not, gonna go, we're not gonna take that approach. 25 verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Chapter 36 verse one, these are the generations of Esau. And then chapter 37 verse two, these are the generations of Jacob. Interestingly, everything you find at the end of Genesis with Joseph is really just unpacking Jacob. It's Jacob's story. Joseph's not really the key figure in that story. It's Jacob. And it's how God is keeping his promise to Jacob by bringing him back, to, by bringing him out of famine and by preparing them for Moses' deliverance of the people in Exodus. So you see, I wanted you to see it, actually see it on the page. You see that throughout the book of Genesis, we get these, these little structural elements. These are the generations of. And the use of these words in chapter 2, verse 4, is telling us that the creation of the heavens and the earth begins the history of humanity. So just as you would have Terah, and then you would go on and unpack that through Abraham, and just as you would have Jacob, and you would go on and unpack that through Joseph, here you have the entire creation the heavens and the earth, everything we've discussed, the sea creatures, the sun, the trees, everything, where that leads is ultimately right here with human beings. So in a sense, that sense that we got when we came to the end of chapter one, where we've been going, 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 and we're at the top of the mountain, let us make man in our own image, that same sense is here present at the beginning of chapter two. Heavens and the earth, all now focused in on Adam and Eve. All of it exists for this purpose, a theater for God's redemption, ultimately, of human beings. 
But here's the main thing that I want you to see at this point, as we have up here the historical account. These words tell us that we are reading a historical account. Let me explain what I mean by that. What that tells us, this is very important, very, very important. What that tells us is that as we come to, as we come to read the rest of Genesis, the skeletal structure tells us that what we are reading in chapter 2 is no less historical than what we read in chapter 10 or 11 or 25 or 36 or 37. This skeletal structure tells us that we are dealing with historical writing. Let me give, a, give you a quote <coughs> from Wayne Grudem on this point in his Systematic Theology, which I think captures uh, what it is I'm trying to say here. This is what he says. By this literary device, meaning the use of these words as a structure, by this literary device, the author has introduced various sections of his historical narrative, tying it all together in a unified whole and indicating that it is to be understood as history writing of the same sort throughout. If the author intends us to understand Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as historical figures, then he also intends us to understand Adam and Eve as historical figures. <clears throat> what that tells us, and there are key Christian leaders, I won't name them, there are key Christian leaders out there who would say that what we find in Genesis 1-11 to is, 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 is a kind of uh, mythological sort of construction meant to be understood very much like a, a sort of metaphorical understanding of human reality or where, where things have come from. But when we get you know, to Abraham in chapter 12 and when we go through the stories of Genesis, now we're dealing with some real sort of events in space and time. Now we're dealing with something that we might could call history, the kind of history that Luke, say, is writing at the beginning of his gospel when he says, look, I've, I've tried to give you an account of everything that's happened among us based on eyewitnesses. That's the kind of sort of historical sense that Luke gives us as he begins to unfold. And so what I'm saying is that any idea, any notion that says that what we have in Genesis 1 to 11 with Adam and Eve and the serpent all the way up through the flood and the Tower of Babel that sees these events as somehow different from what begins in chapter 12 that idea is betrayed by the structure of the author himself. And if we are asking the question, what does the author of this book intend to convey? It is that, history. What happened then? So, I'll put it to you this way. The dust, the rib, and the serpent are to be understood as historical realities, not <coughs> metaphorical, every man here being found, that, that's been said by theologians, it's metaphorical for every man, Adam is every man essentially, it's true in a sense, but it really happened, there was an Adam, not metaphorical or mythological, this is historical, and we get that just from the structure of the book itself, but there's more, we find this same conviction throughout the Bible. And I could give you many examples here. We could sit here, we could spend an entire sermon. I even thought about doing it. We could spend an entire sermon sort of tracing out. Don't worry, we're not gonna do it. But, but I, 
But we could spend an entire sermon just simply tracing out Adam and Eve in the whole Bible, just looking at every occurrence of them that refers back. But I want to give you a few, just a few. So the chronicler, by the way, a chronicler, we understand as someone who, if anybody's writing history, it's a chronicler, okay? The chronicler in 1 Chronicles 1.1 begins his genealogy of David with Adam, filled with genealogies. And he starts with Adam. Luke, whom I just mentioned, the physician and historian, he traces the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam. Could have stopped maybe with someone uh, like Abraham or something. No, it goes all the way back to Adam. To the Athenian philosophers, Paul will unapologetically declare. Paul's not embarrassed about this. To the, to the greatest minds of Greece and Rome, there gathered in Athens, Paul will say this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And you could go to Romans 5 where Paul says, through one man sin came into the world. And he talks about Adam's sin and how Christ comes as the Adam was disobedient, Christ comes as the obedient one. Romans 5, you could go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, and other places. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, very specifically, this is what Paul says. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Do you know what he's referring to there? Genesis 2. That's the only place we have that recorded. Jesus the Word made flesh. He who is truth, capital T, referring to Genesis 2, will say in Matthew 19, listen to his words. Have you not read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, here he quotes Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. <clears throat> so what we read in Genesis 2 is the real, true, literal, historical account of human origins. Not mythology, not metaphor, but historical reality in space, in time. This was the understanding of the people of God throughout the biblical history. This was the understanding of Christ. Jesus saw it this way. This was Jesus's anthropology. This was Jesus's understanding of where human beings began. The Lord himself. God has told us how it all began and we do not have to apologize for believing it. You feel like you have to apologize? To whom? To whom should we apologize for believing God's word when you consider all of the fantastical things that people tell us about how we came to be. I'll say it again. God, the creator, the one who was there, the only one who was there, has told us how it began and we do not have to apologize to anybody for believing it. So that's the first point I think we need to see. Just as we look at verse four, as we look at this structural item, we're meant to say history. This is history. 
The second point that I want you to see is the preparatory circumstances. Look at verses 5 to 6. Genesis 2, verses 5 to 6. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. <coughs> now, I think our tendency when we read the Bible <clears throat> whoop, is just to read straight past the, these kind, this kind of material. Because it's really confusing. It's confusing to kind of think through it, to preach it. What, what, what is going on here? And the reason I say that it is hard to grapple with and understand is because, well, this, this particular set of verses has given rise to much confusion among interpreters. Interpreters don't really know what to do. They disagree over what to do with verses <coughs> 5 and 6. And here's why. On the surface, it seems to confuse the order of creation in Genesis 1. So what are we told on day three? Remember the, the creation account, the six days of God's work? What are we told on day three? Well, chapter one, verse 12 says this. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So what in the world is going on here when we come to verses five to six, and we say, and he says, before there was no bush of the field and no small plant of the field, and then he makes man. We, I thought that it was day six when he made humans. We should have all kinds of vegetation on the earth, that the earth brought forth, as it says, that it came forth vegetation on the earth. How can it say here that there is no vegetation? Well, this has been approached from various angles, but I'm convinced by the interpretation of some who have pointed out that the language is simply meant, you'll have to really follow me here, that the language is simply meant to describe a circumstance or condition before the fall, before humanity and the ground are cursed. In other words, before there were shrubs and plants of the field, this is post-fall vegetation. Remember thorns and thistles, and I'll make mention of another part of that in a moment, but before there were shrubs and plants of the field, post-fall vegetation, before there were men tilling the ground, post-fall <coughs> labor, but before, <coughs> excuse me, before there was rain, which is a post-fall condition associated with drought and flooding, what's the first reference we get in the Bible to rain? We get the flood that comes upon the earth, and all throughout the Bible, the rain is something that man is utterly dependent upon. It comes, and sometimes it floods, and it's terrible, and it ruins things, and sometimes it's withheld, and there's drought, and there's much famine in the land. We get this throughout the Bible. So before these plants, before this labor, before this source of water, this means of watering the earth, this was the circumstance in which we find ourselves when man was made. In other words, those verses are not meant to tell us uh, something with regard to day three. They're meant to give us a picture of a pre-fall condition. Now, why do I say this? I think there are two little details that tell us this is the case. The first is this language of plant of the field. This is different language than we find in chapter one, verse 12, with these fruit-bearing, seed-bearing plants. What is this language, the plant of the field? 
Well, if we look at the fall, remember in chapter 3, we have the fall of human beings, and the ground is cursed, and man is cursed. And if you look at that post-curse language, what you see is this language reappears. And so in chapter 3, verse 18, it says this about the land. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and listen to this, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Plants of the field is not something we have mentioned up to this point. This is the first time thorns and thistles and plants of the field are mentioned. It goes on to say this, to help us understand what the plants of the field are. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Well, what's bread made out of? Wheat, barley, and so forth. These are the kinds of plants, the kinds of of crops that man has to cultivate in much labor, with much fickleness in the environment. This is the kind of cultivation that only happens after the fall. There's work in the garden for sure. We'll get to that in chapter 2, verse 15. Man is to keep the garden. He is to to work in the garden. But it's different. It's a leisurely work. It's a work of rest. It's not a labor that we find here. And that leads to the second little bit of of evidence that we have for this. And that's the words, to work the ground. Chapter 3, verse 23 says, The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground, the same language, to work the ground from which he was taken. So here's my point. I've probably lost half of you, maybe even three-fourths, maybe all. But here, here's what, here's what is, 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 here's what I'm saying. The language that we get in verses five to six is meant to direct us to a post-fall condition so that what the text is simply saying at this point is that we are dealing with a situation before man sinned, before the world, as the Israelites who read this knew it at the time in which they encountered it. (coughs) So what should we see here? What should we take away from this? Well, I think the reader is already being prepared for the fall. And, you know, one of the things I said at the very beginning of the sermon is that chapter 2 expands chapter 1. But that's not all that it does. It expands chapter one, but it also anticipates chapter three. So chapter two is meant to give us greater detail on what's going on on day six. Let us make man in our own image. But it is also meant to say something is about to happen. Let me set up the pieces for you. And so we get Eden. We get a garden. We get the man. We get the woman. We get these two trees the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We get all these little details all throughout chapter two so that when the serpent appears at the beginning of chapter three and tempts Eve (coughs) to eat from the tree, then we begin to understand how that is unfolding. So chapter two is preparing us for chapter three. And that's exactly what we get with these verses. So what's the implication for us? I think it's this. You can't talk about human beings for long at all before talking about their sin. And here's what I want you to see. Any view of man that fails to take seriously the fall of Genesis chapter 3 will itself fail. And any view of Christianity or any view of of life as we know it today that fails to take account of the monumental event of Genesis chapter three will fail. At the heart of our existence as human beings is sin. 
There are socioeconomic problems. There are environmental problems. But at the heart of all of our problems and at the beginning of all of our problems is this. Man's wicked, rebellious, God-hating, self-exalting, others-hating heart. That's at the center of human existence. And if we fail to see that, and if we begin to understand that human beings are basically good, not basically sinful, then every understanding that we have about anything that has to do with human beings will be perverted. So you can't talk about human beings for long at all before talking about our sin. So that's the second thing we need to see is the preparatory circumstances. They lean into chapter 3. Thirdly, we need to see the lowly material. Now we come to a detailed account of how, God, how man was formed. And later in chapter 2, we'll get an account of how woman was formed. And here I want to just focus on the first part of verse 7. So look there with me. Verse 7. <coughs> it says this, the beginning of chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So here we see that the Bible wants to remind us of our origin. We come from the dust. We're told in our origin story, our understanding of human origins, we're told that you can't talk about man very long before you begin to talk about his sin. <coughs> And here we are told that we, as human beings, come from the dust. <clears throat> Why? <clears throat> Why is it so important for us to understand this reality? I think there are two main reasons why we can never forget that we come from the dust. The first is this. It gives us an affinity for the created world. You know, people talk about it. People, people have all kinds of reasons for respecting the earth. They give all sorts of reasons for treating animals well. But all of that, all of that discussion, all of that environmental discussion, all of that care for animals discussion, all of it goes back to what we find in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when man is given dominion over the creation. And God did not take him and sort of drop him in, like parachute him in from somewhere else to oversee the creation. Instead, God built him up from the very thing itself that he was going to oversee. The very thing that he was going to rule, God formed him from that. And so we see in Genesis 2.19 about animals. <clears throat> it says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. So where did bears and donkeys and frogs, where did they come from? They came from the ground. They came from the dust. And that is exactly where human beings came from as well. So it is meant to connect us to all other creation, which we will oversee. That's the first reason. But the second reason is far more important, I think. And it's this. <coughs> Simply put, it humbles us. When we consider that we come from dust, a man can only exalt himself so far. We, we get all kinds of pictures of pride in the Bible, don't we? I mean, probably the greatest picture of this 
is King Nebuchadnezzar of the, the Babylonian king. We read about this in Daniel, how God humbles him, brings him down to the dirt from which he was made. He loses his mind for seven years and he eats grass. He crawls around on the ground. There's a medical condition, by the way, for, for that. But he, he's on the ground there next to the dirt from which he was made. He had exalted himself almost to the point of, of godhood. He was the great king, the mightiest, richest king in the world. And God humbled him back to the dirt. We see this all throughout the Bible. We see this all throughout human history with dictators and despots and all kinds of leaders who have harmed people and tyrants who have exalted themselves. We see this today. Men of power, men of money, men of fame see themselves as great. And the Bible wants to say, you're dust to every man, woman, and child. This is not a message of self-esteem, really. It's a message of humble reality. This is what Calvin says. He had said that man was formed in the image of God. This is incomparably the highest nobility. But, lest men should use it as an occasion of pride, they are reminded of their origin. Adam's body was formed from clay and destitute of sense so that no one can boast about his body. Only an excessively stupid person does not learn humility from this. That's kind of typical, that's kind of typical Calvin right there. <coughs> so there you go. Only an excessively stupid person does not learn humility from this. There's Adam, just, just clay, formless, no life, no glory at all, not a bit of it, just dust. I think there are a few things for us to consider here. The first one I think is obvious. Apart from God, we are nothing but dust. <coughs> and in fact, we are told in the Bible at Genesis chapter 3, after man sins, from dust you were taken, God tells Adam and Eve, from dust you were taken, and to dust you shall return. And we need to understand this morning that that is the end for each of us. Each of us, hear this, each of us will return to dust. That's sobering. Does that depress you? In Christ it should not. Because... In Adam, there is returning to dust. And Daniel says at the end of his book that one day, God will take that dust and he'll raise it up of the unsaved person, the person who has one existence in Adam, post-sin. When you come to the end, you'll return to the dust. Your body will rot and decay in the earth or however, be burned up or decay in the earth. And the Bible tells us that at the end, God will raise your dead body from the dust and he will judge you in your body. There in your dusty body, soul reunited, the same soul by which you cursed God and loved self, he will judge you there before him in your body. 
and cast, as Jesus says, both soul and body into hell. That is what it means to be in Adam. And that is the state. That is the state of every human being. That's the state of all of us. That's the state of all of those we love. That's the state of all of those we, we, we don't like so much. That's the state of every person who lives on the earth since Adam. But in Christ, the man of heaven, our souls are renewed day by day. Our spirits are made alive to know God. And one day, he will remake our bodies into eternal, imperishable, glorious bodies. And we will exist soul and body forever in God's presence as Adam did serving him forever. You are either this morning in Adam or in Christ. And I think as we come to this dust, this is sobering for each of us. Which is it? Which is it this morning? Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? I think it also reminds us to focus on the inward person and not to consume ourselves with this dusty outward appearance. Vanity of vanities. I mean, how often do we concern ourselves, consume ourselves with how we look, with our appearance in all kinds of ways, how we look in the car we're driving around in, how we look in our new clothes, how we look with our new haircut, how we look, how we appear, whatever the case might be, we're consumed with our outward appearance. And what the Bible reminds us of is this turns to dust, friend. This will turn to dust. There will be a time, think about it, when each of us will be utterly ugly. I mean, just falling apart, each of us. There will come a time. So what that tells us in this life, prepare for the life to come. <clears throat> Do not prepare yourself for this dusty death in your physical body in that way making it look so pretty and adorning it in all kinds of ways, consuming yourself with how you appear to men, but consume yourself with the state of your heart before God, before whom you will live or be judged. But there is so much more to man than dust. And that brings us to our final point. Number four, the special creation. <coughs> this is really the main point. As we come here, look at the latter part of verse seven. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. In addition to dust and ground, we've already looked at that with the animals. Some of the other language used here is also used of the animals. So we have breath of life. Well, that's also used of the animals. Genesis 1:30, everything that has the breath of life. He's talking there about creatures, not just human beings, but creatures on the land. In chapter 7 of Genesis, verse 22, with the, the whole narrative about the flood, it says this: everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. And so just as man is made from the dust and has breath of life, so too do animals have the breath of life. Life. Man's uniqueness is not found there, per se. What about this idea of being a living creature? Well, we know that's not the case. Because Genesis 1.24 says, 
let the earth bring forth living creatures. So we know that man is not unique in that he has the breath of life. All other creatures have the breath of life, land-dwelling creatures at least. And we know that, <coughs> that we are living creatures just like these others. So the whole idea that humans and animals, the question of do humans have souls but animals don't have souls, well, it depends on how you define soul. If you define, if you understand soul as, as something that animates the body and that there's, there's life and there's a force that animates, then all creatures that live and move have a soul in that sense. It depends on what you mean. But what we see here with the creation of man is utterly unique. Even though he's made from the ground, and even though he has the breath of life just like the other creatures, and even though he's called just like them a living creature, we see here the creation of man is utterly unique. We've already been told this, that man is made, man and woman together as humanity made in God's image. But here there's a number of things that tell us that human beings were made uniquely. Let me give you a few of them as we finish up this morning. First, look at God's name. Look at God's name. Verse 4, it starts, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this is very interesting. I didn't actually discover that. I didn't discover that until this week. Something that really blew my mind is that not, not so much that the Lord God is what's used here, but what I'm about to say in a moment. So throughout these verses, the creation of man, the text switches from God, more generic, powerful, omnipotent, majestic, Elohim, God in Genesis 1. It shifts to the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the Lord God. And what that tells us is that there's, there's, a, there's a particular level of intimacy here. As God moves from creation as a whole, and we come to see this, this explanation of the creation of human beings, we see in the very name of God, the very referent for God in this passage, we see the intimacy of God. We see his covenant love <coughs> as he is here making man. This is the relational covenant-making name of God. And here's what's interesting, what I was gonna say a moment ago. When we get to the serpent in Genesis 3 and the serpent tempts Eve, notice what he says in verse one. This is chapter three. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then he goes on to say, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. What has Satan omitted? The Lord. You see, Satan is very subtle there. He's very crafty. He has immediately distanced Eve from the covenant-making God. Even in the way he refers to God, he refers to him as more distant than more intimate. He's already begin to twist, beginning to twist her thinking away from this God who cares, who loves, who is good, who is present, who is imminent. He's already beginning to move her mind away from that by stripping from the name of God, the name that is pervasive throughout chapter two, the Lord God. That tells us that everything we see here is relational in nature. God wants a relationship with human beings. He delights in a relationship with humans. So we see that it's that. We see that it's direct. You know, with the animals, what did God say? Let the earth bring forth. And it did. Let the earth bring forth these living creatures. God could have said that about humans. He could have said, let the earth bring forth man. And man just sort of zoop, 
came right up out of the earth, and there you go. But that's not how it happened. We see here careful and gradual artistic work. God is pictured here in the, most, in the clearest way as a potter. He is carefully and gradually sculpting man in a way that he does not do with any other of his creatures. Communicating to us this morning how much he loves us. Communicating to us this morning how much he is sovereign over our lives. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Paul will pick that up in Romans 9. And he will say, who are you, O man? To answer back to God, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me this way? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out out of one lump, to make out of the same lump, one vessel, vessel for dishonorable use and another for honorable use? It tells us that God is both loving and he is sovereign. We also see here the most intimacy that you could possibly get in creation. What is this image? Face to face. What does God do? He imparts his own breath. Now we can't understand really what that means. What that looked like had you been there and watched it happen. This is anthropomorphic language. This is language that, under, that, that tries to, to show us what God who is spirit is doing as he is making human beings. But what we see here is the image of face to face contact. This lifeless, dead chunk of clay, and God gets right up close to it, right up personal with it, and he breathes his own breath into it, and it comes to life, becomes man. So what are the implications for us? Well, the one I just said before, this is God's love and God's sovereignty. Do you understand that God loves you, the people in your life, that God really does want a relationship with human beings, that he delights to know and walk with human beings? Do you believe that God cares for people this much, that he is this intimately involved in your life? I mean, listen to this. If you are a Christian, you're indwelt by his spirit, and he is your father. We go all the way back to Genesis 2, and we see that he face-to-face breathes life He did far more than that for you when he saved you. When he saved you, he did far more in you that you can't even understand, that we can't even understand. He did far more to you and in you than he ever did in breathing into Adam. So what kind of trust ought this to cultivate in the human heart? Trust in this good, loving potter, (coughs) our God. As I finish up this morning, I just want to make this final comment. We see here a counter to evolutionary thought. We've already seen a counter to that in the creation narrative. We've seen that animals are made with biological boundaries. Remember that? According to their kind. (coughs) So we have birds according to their kinds. We have sea creatures and we have land animals according to their kinds. These are biological boundaries that cannot be transgressed. So we've already seen a refutation in the text for this understanding of evolution that is so pervasive in our day. But here it comes face to face with the reality that human beings are unique, special creations of God created directly by him in this particular 
way. What that tells us is that this is incompatible with this understanding of human beings as coming from some kind of ape-like creature. And this is what we need to teach our children. Despite everything that we hear in our culture, I can remember taking Jake when we lived in Scotland, and it's much more pervasive there. There, there are no homeschools. There are no uh, uh, kind of enclaves of, uh, of creationists and so forth. It's not that. It's just, it's just everywhere. And I can remember taking him into a, a museum there and we would go and there, the only video that they would show was a video of creation and it was explaining a video, not of creation, uh, a creation as they understood it, the universe creating more universe. Uh, and they described where we came from. This is not the truth that God has delivered to us in his word. These two things are not compatible, despite the fact that there are some evangelical Christians who would hold to theistic evolution. What is that? Theistic evolution says this, that God used the processes of evolution in order to give rise to humans. That the, this process of evolution, some sort of ape-like creature to a human being is perfectly fine. That at some point, God came and he met human beings, homo sapiens, and he did a special work in them and they became unique in God's image. I don't understand how you can hold that view and read this Bible with belief, with belief. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to believe this book. For we know that the worlds were made by the word of God. And this book is the very word breathed out by the Holy Spirit. Perfect, inerrant, infallible. And it tells us where we come from and who we are. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us these words we thank you for giving us this dignity. We thank you for giving us this humbling reality that we were nothing but dust before you breathed life into us. We thank you for Christ who brings us to an imperishable state one day. We thank you for the hope that we have of living in a new heaven and a new earth with you where there is no more death, no more pain, and no more sin, no more temptation, no more devil. Father, we look forward to that day. Would you help us to trust you in the moment, <clears throat> to grow us spiritually, to keep us in the faith? Would you help us to take advantage of the means of grace that we would walk with you in intimacy, knowing how much you desire that from us, that we would look to you in everything, in all of our trials, in all of our joys, that we would find in you a shelter and a fortress. In Jesus' name, amen.